Welcome. We're so glad to have you today here at East LJ Baptist Church. And uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we want to welcome you especially. Um, thank you for being here. Here at East LJ, we have been captivated by Christ. We have seen through the gospel the glory of God in the grace of God given to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see the beautiful heart of our Father who loved us and gave His own Son to save us, and he has captivated us. We exist as a church to spread our enjoyment of the beauty of Christ to the world, and we pray that today that you'll see his beauty and you'll find your heart captivated by him as well. I want to give a quick thank you to several people, to all who helped set up, who cooked, who cleaned up uh, for homecoming last Sunday. We had record setup times, record cleanup times. Uh, you all just worked together beautifully and had a great time of fellowship. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to Miss Pam Callahan for kind of coordinating everything. A great day uh, was had last week. We're thankful that David Aiken could be with us and just what a sweet uh, homecoming it was. Also, thanks to the Pink Pig for providing some of the food for us. Uh, also, want to thank uh, Jenny Burnett who made gallons and gallons and gallons of tea and so uh, and just donated that to us from. Um, chili dogs, so we're thankful for all of those who had a part in homecoming last Sunday. At this time, Tim Brooks is going to come and uh, give us a report. Um, we support Dow Ministries. This is the, the mi mission work of Scott and Jenny Phillips as they do translation work in Indonesia. Um, but they also are building a training center up in Sail Creek, Tennessee, and uh, Tim, as well as Robert uh, Roger Putnam, and, and maybe a couple of others have gone and served there on site. And Tim just wants to give a brief update on the progress uh, and invite some of you to be involved in the work uh, going on up there. So, Tim, come. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, in case you didn't catch it, my name's Tim Brooks, if you don't know me. I'm on the mission committee here at the church. I've been doing missions for a number of years, and uh, it's, de it's very dear to my heart. Uh, I'll try to give you a little testimony. Why is missions important to me? Uh, take you back to a time, you know, a number of years ago, I was a lot younger and a lot stronger than I am now. But uh, I uh, was uh, a father with a young child in school, uh, helping out my local church, was uh, working with the Juanas, working with the youth, uh, singing in the choir. Uh, I was a member of a local community organization, a nonprofit. I was a member of the volunteer fire department. Um, I had a uh, career where I had worked my way up through uh, companies after companies, and I was in, put in charge of some very important projects in the Atlanta area. Uh, I had a lot of responsibility. I was, as everybody could say today, I was very busy. Uh, had too much to do all the time. I was on call 24 hours a day in my community, and I was looked upon as someone that had to be there at work. And during that time, the pastor of our church announced in church, we're going to go on a mission trip, and you're coming too. And I said, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. And everybody said, well, pray about it. Pray about it. See what God says. So I prayed about it. I can't do that. I don't have time to do that. And finally, it got down to where church and the pastor was saying, you know, you got to make plans. You, we've got to buy tickets. We've got to have commitments. And uh, 
So one morning I was at work. Before I started work, I prayed every morning. And I said, God, I don't have time for this. You know, these people are pressuring me to come do something, take a week off. I had plans. I'm making good money now. I got plans to go to Yellowstone. I don't have time for this. You're going to have to show me. Show me. If this is what you want me to do. Before lunch, I had gotten notice that I had a rebate on insurance check. Imagine that insurance company giving me money back. I had my wife call me and say that come up money from somewhere. I had people from church calling me, telling me, I'll find you a job to do, pay you, so that you can make the money to go. By lunchtime, God showed me the sign. And I said, oh, okay. I don't have to be too dumb to see. Here's your sign. And it was as if in the back of my mind, that still voice, in the voice of my dad, which my dad could get a message across when you messed up, the voice of my dad said, here's your sign. And don't make me have to show you again. You know what you got to do. Since that time, I've been on several missions trips. I've been helping missionaries, and I've never asked again, what should I do? Because I know. I know what God wants me to do. So when we moved up here, we went to, became members of East LJ. Uh, Chad asked me to be on the mission committee. I started thinking about how I could help, and uh, I uh, found contacts with missionaries that uh, I had been supporting, and I knew we had talked to, and we'd supported in my old church, and uh, I text out, and uh, called them up or sent them emails and said, hey, I'm at a new church now. I'd like to be able to help you and sponsor you if I can. And one of those was Scott Phillips. And uh, I found out that Scott not only had spent 10 years in Indonesia, uh, he had written a book. He had uh, started his own ministry. But uh, COVID had struck when they came home for one of their children's birth, uh, had complications with the birth, so they came home to have the, the baby and then COVID shut down Indonesia. If you don't know, the, a lot of those countries like Indonesia, when COVID hit, they said, we don't want these guys. They, they made this, this disease and we don't want them back in country. So if they leave, they're staying out. And there's some missionaries still struggling to get back into country. But luckily Scott's had contacts with other missionaries in Indonesia, with the folks in his uh, village that he lived in and uh, with uh, other mission organizations so he maintains his links to everything he's continuing to uh, uh, translate the Bible they finished with the New Testament they're working on the Old Testament and uh, things just we're cutting out for some reason but things progress the way they should and uh, Scott's ministry instead of being limited by COVID it expanded it expanded enormously. He had people calling him up and saying, hey, we've got this that we need. We've got that what we need. Do you want to partner with us? Do you want to help us expand? Do you want us to build a new center on a new island? He, his opportunities increased greatly. And uh, so one of those things that, that he talked about uh, was the need for missionaries to be trained in better in how to live in a remote village. 
you guys probably couldn't imagine, you know, it'd be like uh, naked and afraid or alone or something if you were dumped. Even if you knew how to translate, you knew how to talk to people, you had some people in country. Can you imagine trying to build a place to live on the side of a mountain in the middle of nowhere where maybe, maybe a helicopter could get to to drop in a few supplies and keep you in food? Maybe you wouldn't starve. Uh, that was the situation for a lot of missionaries, and it causes a lot of missionaries to uh, give up. A lot of young missionaries quit in about six months to a year because it's just too tough for them. They can't hack it. So Scott got the idea, well, what if we help train them on how to build a place to live, on how to live successfully, make it a little bit easier on them so that they can focus on what they're supposed to be doing, which is learning the culture, learning the language, Trans, start to translate the Bible, then maybe we can make them more successful. So when we contacted him, Scott gave me this plan that he had to build a missionary training center in Sell Creek, Tennessee, where he owned some property, and uh, went up and took a look at it and, uh, and caught the, the fever, so to speak, of uh, you know the great plan that he had developed there. So uh, I'm going to come down here to where I can see what you see, so hopefully we don't get the slides out of sequence and all. But uh, I went up, and then I invited Roger Putnam to go up, and we started looking at it. Uh, what you see in here is the beginning of the, the whole campus with the main building. It's the main building for them to have events, to uh, have meetings, to have church. They actually had a group of Mennonite, or former Mennonite, uh, churchgoers from New York State that Scott had uh, gone up and, and talked to. They came down and, and uh, built this structure and put the roof on. And then uh, I got up there about in time to help a little bit with the lower roof. Thankfully, I didn't have to get on top of that roof. But this is the first of the buildings in a, in a whole center there to be used to train missionaries. So, go to the next slide. This is uh, the views of the uh, building. But uh, the unique thing, the neat thing about this center that's different than probably any other place in the country is that it's, for the most part, going to be built the same way that they would build something out in the jungle, the same way that they would build something if uh, the missionaries were building for themselves. So, Scott bought a, a sawmill. That's what you see there in the foreground is a sawmill. And uh, he said, okay, we got pine trees around here. All we need is people to cut them down, saw them up, make lumber out of them. And uh, I said, okay, uh, I think I'm going to need Roger to do this. So I invited Roger to come up, and Roger said, yeah, this is cool. He liked it. So next slide, we start cutting boards. And over the wintertime, Roger and I cut a lot of boards. Scott cut a lot of boards. And we stacked them up and let them dry out. There's a whole stack of siding waiting to be put on the building. So all this was planned because we knew the guys from New York were going to come back this summer and work on siding. So even last fall, we were working toward this summer. Next slide. So the guys from New York came down. And they started, but they were not as many as did the frame. And they did a great job. I mean, I don't know if you, Roger, have you seen this since this was up? These are the boards that Roger cut that uh, I helped with some. And uh, they were trimmed up and cut in place and, and nailed up on the side of the building. 
And uh, it's starting to look like a real building now. Next slide. Uh, I came in and I started working. These, those guys were doing a great job on the outside, so I said, okay, I'm going to start on the inside. So I started framing up for the bathrooms and framing up for the kitchen and uh, doing interior work. Next slide. Uh, this is a view out the end. The guys from New York, they, they got doors up. They got three-quarters of the siding on, and they didn't get this end done, but I thought this was a beautiful picture of the way the building is. And uh, uh, once the siding's up, it's going to show that cross in the top. It's going to look very nice. All right, next slide. But that just means there's a lot of siding to be completed. There's a lot of ceiling and staining that needs to be done. There's 40-something uh, windows to 50-something windows to be installed, framing, plumbing, uh, septic system. All this needs to be done. So I'm in the process of, of uh, reaching out to people, asking people to help, asking people to uh, come up and take a look at it and see, you know, if you can hold a level, if you can hold a board, if you can uh, uh, stack lumber or do anything, I'm asking for volunteers to help with that. Next slide. Okay, going to the next one. We, we could always use help. I uh, wanted to point out that young lady right there who came up and helped one day, and she did whatever she could, and uh, that's a member of our church, Susan, and uh, she helped out there with Scott's son, and, uh, you know, she just basically said, I want to come along. I want to see what you guys are doing. I want to help where I can. So, so they, you know, reorganized some stuff and moved stuff out of the way, <clears throat> and we've had several people do that, that, you know, a whole family came up last time I was up there and said, well, we can't. We don't know anything about carpentry. What can we do? And they spent the morning and moved a pile of boards from one place to another so we could work in that area. I could do that framing. And it was a, it was a huge help. Any little thing normally helps, regardless of your skill level. Okay, next slide. All right, so I wanted to put these names up here. Uh, a friend of mine, James Culberson, Roger, Susan, a friend of mine, Wayne Fan. And uh, uh, a guy that Wayne brought, William Humphrey, uh, who's been continuing with the sawmill work. Uh, it's kind of like uh, these things kind of work the way that the uh, apostles came to be followers of Jesus. One guy, another guy, another guy. You pick up one guy that you know, and, and you ask him to help, and he usually picks up one guy that he knows, and he asks him to help. And eventually, things get done. Okay, next slide. All right, this is the big picture. Chad said, I need to give you guys a picture of the overall in order to understand what they're trying to do. This is a, what, 20,000 foot picture, but it still helps you to know. The big building on the right by the pond, that's the one that you saw being built. That's the first building. But the plan is to have a communal, uh, there you go, thank you. The plan is to have a communal bathhouse, laundry, kitchen, whatever, beside that with some smaller houses around it that uh, people live in uh, that would be built just like uh, they would build out in the in the jungle with uh, timber framing metal roofs uh, solar power uh, you know it's very minimalist but you can see this is a big area he's actually got a nice little piece of property there and he's got big plans uh, eventually if things work the way he wants he's gonna create spaces where folks, if they want to come up on their vacation, uh, they can bring a camper and park the camper there, stay there, 
and uh, while they're they're helping out at the site if uh, people are coming up for short-term training or whatnot they can do the same thing so he's got a, a plan for the whole facility for the whole center there it's not just one building it's not just one thing with very little organization it's very well thought out and I wanted to point that out to you so I want to invite anybody who's interested anybody who knows anybody who's interested or 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 does this kind of work to get in touch with me and uh, I'll be more than happy for them to ride along and uh, go up on a weekend and help out if you see me and I'm not here if you don't see me I'm not here on a Sunday that's probably where I am because uh, it's a beautiful place it's up in the mountains above Chattanooga and uh, it, it's just a great place to go and hang out even if you're not working if you're exhausted after a long day of sweating uh, it's a beautiful place to hang out and uh, go down by the creek and uh, put your feet in there and, and relax so I invite you to come with me thank you thank you Tim and uh, it's exciting to hear how God is amen how God is working uh, at Dow Ministries and uh, it's exciting to me to hear how God has been at work in Tim's heart. God's really given Tim a burden for this. So uh, after service, between service and conference, Tim will kind of be uh, over this way. You can just hang out over here, Tim. And uh, if you're interested in, in teaming up with uh, Tim and the others, uh, see him after, after the service today. Amen. Luke chapter 22. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Luke chapter 22. We'll pick it up in verse 28. Jesus, uh, you'll remember where we were last when Jesus uh, had rebuked the disciples for bickering about who was the greatest. The next thing he says is in verse 28, Luke 22, verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon... Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Until you deny three times that you know me. And then skipping down to verse 54, what Jesus said would happen, happened. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they would kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Aren't you thankful that in spite of our shiftiness, the shiftiness of our faith, our 
clear-cut unfaithfulness, aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus is faithful to us? And aren't you thankful that even though Peter denied him, he went on to the cross to die for Peter, where he also died for me and for you, to redeem sinners who will, who will never be worthy, never be faithful enough to earn uh, our salvation before a holy God. We're so blessed to have that knowledge and know the gospel today. But so many that you know don't yet know Jesus, uh, don't clearly understand the gospel perhaps, friends, family members, co-workers, we want to pray for them. We also want to pray for the, uh, the nations. Today we want to pray for the Orang Negeri Menangkabau people of Malaysia. Uh, this is a Muslim people group of almost a million, 967,000, uh, with no believers among them. We want to pray for the gospel to penetrate this people group. And then we're going to join our hearts together and pray for many that are grieving, several families grieving and others sick today. So join me as we pray. Father, we thank you that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Thank you, Father, for grace that overcomes even our practical, if not verbal, denials of you. Thank you, God, that our salvation depends not on our faithfulness because it's pathetic, but on the faithful love of our Father and His Son, Jesus. We praise you for your grace. And God, we pray you would make us, strengthen us, help us to be faithful witnesses to your love to those that we know. And God, today we pray that you would penetrate the people group we've mentioned in, there in Malaysia with the gospel. Father, raise up people who know you nearby to get into this area with the truth of, of, of God's grace in Jesus. Prepare their hearts, we pray, even now to receive it. And Lord, today we join our hearts together to pray for the family of Shirley Waters, for the family of Dorothy Harrington, for the family of Leonard Nixon, for the family of Joyce Evans. Father, we pray for comfort for all of these families today. We pray that you would give strength and a sense of your presence, your nearness, and that, God, your nearness would be their comfort and would be their good in these days. Father, we want to lift up Ray Perkins. Uh, pray for strength and healing there. We pray for Miss Winnie Reese. And thank you for a successful surgery and, and so far a good recovery. Continue to pray also for Jerry Haymaker. God, there are others that you know. Um, and we just pray whatever the need, Father, this morning. For each and every one in the room, those joining us by live stream, God, that you would meet us right where we are. Be it a physical need be it uh, a need for provision, be it oh, just encouragement today. Uh, Lord, even correction, whatever our need is before you, God, we pray that you would meet that and speak to us as only you can through your word and by your spirit. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain standing as we worship together in song. Let's sing together as we do. Where could I go?
darkness, my God, that is who you are. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Father, how we praise you that that is indeed who you are. And as we gather here in this place this morning, we have gathered in the presence of the only true and living God. God who made all things and sustains all things. You are a miracle worker. God, you can and are in the business and even in the process today of changing hearts and lives. God, what is impossible for us is is very possible. It is nothing for you, the Almighty One. And Father, today we come to you. We thank you for your grace in Jesus that makes all life change, all transformation, all hope possible. Thank you that Jesus lives today and that that changes everything. And so we come to you and we pray that you would continue the work you've begun already in this hour as we open your word. We pray that you would speak to us. God, we come to you needy, dependent. We come to you struggling, come to you broken. We come to you bound in sin, perhaps today. We come, Lord, hurt and, and broken by sin, maybe. Lord, we come in need of the rebuke of your spirit, perhaps. However we come, Lord, thank you that you are here. You're healing hearts, you're mending hearts, you're turning lives around by the power of the gospel and through your spirit. So do that work now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll be dismissed to Children's Church. As they're making their way out, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We uh, sure appreciate those who uh, serve in Children's Church and uh, give the gospel in an a, uh, encouraging time, a fun time around the gospel to our children during this worship time. We also appreciate those who serve us. Uh, some of you may not know this, but during every service we have two or three folks that are gathered somewhere else in the building praying for you, praying for me, praying for us together, praying for God to work uh, in our midst. And so we thank God for those. We call them the prayer power teams, and so we just thank God for their ministry to us. You've got this. How many times have you said that this week to somebody? We, we use that phrase a lot these days, don't we? You got this. We use that phrase to encourage one another. And on one level, that's not a bad thing. Sometimes we all just need some encouragement, don't we? We need some encouragement. We need those that are close to us especially to, to have confidence in us, to just in, kind of spur us on. And that expression of confidence and encouragement sort of bolsters us up to step up and take a swing at whatever the circumstance or the situation that's before us. 
But on another level, and from the passage before us today, through the example of Peter, who we are so much like, we see that when it comes to faithfully following Jesus, hear me, we don't got this. We don't got this. We don't ever have this, never have had this in and of ourselves. Only Jesus can say for us and for our faithfulness to him, I got this. I want to talk to you this morning about a faithful Savior for sifted servants. A faithful Savior for sifted servants. Here's the truth that that these verses uh, show us today. Jesus will faithfully keep and restore his own even in our weakness and unfaithfulness to him. Jesus will faithfully keep and restore his own even in our weakness and faith and unfaithfulness to him. A faithful savior for sifted servants. First of all, I want you to notice with me in verses 28 to 30. We're in Luke 22 verses 28 to 30. Notice with me first of all from these three verses the certainty of the disciples' perseverance. Jesus so graciously in these three verses assures the disciples, the the remaining 11, you'll remember Judas is gone to betray Jesus into the hands of uh, his enemies. And and, and, and the the remaining 11, Jesus is so gracious to them because they've just been arguing about what? Who the greatest is. I mean, they've just blown it at the Last Supper table bad by arguing about who's the greatest among them. Hours before Jesus would hang on the cross for them. And yet, Jesus comforts them with these words when he says to these 11 men, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The certainty of the disciples perseverance. He says to these 11 men, I got this. I got you, and you will see my kingdom. In fact, you're going to have special places, you 11, and in my kingdom, and Matthias, who would then come along later, you're going to have special places in my kingdom. You're going to make it. That's a word of encouragement for us today, isn't it? Can we just get real honest? I mean, here's the deal. God knows, so you might as well, right? You ever wonder if you're going to make it? You ever struggle so to follow Jesus? You just wonder if you're actually going to make it. Jesus says to you this morning, you are going to make it. There's a place for you in my kingdom. You're going to get there. How do I know? Because I'm the boss of who gets there. (laughs) I'm in charge, and I'm going to see to it. We'll talk more about his faithfulness later. I'm going to see to it that you get there. The certainty of the disciples' perseverance. You see, Jesus will faithfully keep and restore his own, even in our weakness and unfaithfulness to him. But the second thing I want you to see in verse 31 is the certainty of the disciples' sifting. Look at verse 31. So Jesus comes right off of this encouragement, and he focuses... Primarily on Peter, as, but as we'll see, he's still talking to the group. 
And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So the first thing you need to know about this verse is what we don't see in the English translation of the Greek. You don't hear me say that very often, right? Because pretty much our translations do a real good job of communicating the sense of the Greek to us, and it's not usually a big deal, but we miss something here. Because literally it says, can I give you you the southern translation? If everybody taught like we did, and and if they translate the Bible like we taught, it would be a lot simpler. Y'all ready? And you done figured it out, hadn't you? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all, that he might sift y'all, like wheat. That's a literal translation from the Greek in a southern dialect. How did that work for you? So the point is, both of the U's in this verse are plural, not singular, which means he's not just saying to Peter things about Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift all 11 of you like wheat, to have you, and to sift all 11 of you like wheat. The certainty of the disciples' sifting. Though he's talking primarily to Peter, and we'll see why in a minute, he does have some, some personal business to do with Peter. He tells them all that they'll be sifted like wheat. Now, the picture here of sifting is of wheat that's been scooped up off the threshing floor. You probably, uh, even, even some of our kids and teenagers have, have learned about how wheat is threshed, and so it's put on a floor, uh, you know, like a concrete floor, just imagine. It's thrown up, probably dirt in that day, maybe, thrown up into the air, and the wind is used to blow the chaff or the outside off of the kernel of wheat. I'm pushing my limits of agricultural knowledge here, so I'm just not going to try to get too graphic, but you get the idea. The chaff gets blown away. Well, then they got all this wheat on the floor of the threshing floor, right? So then they scoop it up, and in, in, in that day, in biblical times, wheat or other grain was uh, then, following the threshing, sifted through a sieve or a large strainer. And as it was shaken violently, the dirt and other impurities that clung to the grain during the threshing process would separate from the good, usable grain, and it would be clean kernels of wheat. In sifting Peter... And the other disciples as wheat, Jesus is saying Satan's goal was to crush them and wreck their faith. In truth, the adversary wants to destroy the faith of every believer, doesn't he? John 10 verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus speaking with a reference to Satan. That's what he's about. The scene here reminds me, as Jesus says, Satan has demanded to have you and to sift you like wheat. It reminds me of when God asked permission, or excuse me, excuse me, Satan asked permission from God to test who? Job. Don't turn there. I'm just going to quickly refer to a couple passages in Job. Don't turn there. Just listen. In Job chapter 1, it says, Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for naught? Have you not put a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But, God, if you'll give me permission to mess with Job, God, if you 
will put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power only upon himself, that is his body, do not put forth your hand. Well, we know that happened, and then uh, it, did, and it didn't work. Job didn't break. Job remained faithful to God. And in chapter 2, verse 4, Satan comes back to God because that's the deal. I want to be real clear. There are not two equal omnipotent forces battling it out in this world. There are not. There's only one omnipotent, almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is a created being who has power, as we'll talk about in a minute, but nowhere near the power of our God. But he comes back and he says, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. And he looks at God and he says, but put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your power only. Spare his life. So Satan has power, but it's limited power. God has to give permission to Satan to mess with us. More about that in a minute. About Satan, Jesus calls him in John 16, 11, the prince or ruler of this world. Paul called him the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and the ruler of the authority of the air in Ephesians 2, 2. Satan has some power in this world. He blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and he holds them in his snare until God releases them through the gospel, 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. He can take life as with Job's children. He can ruin health as with Job's body. He can torment with demons, Luke eleven eighteen. He can provoke to evil, to evil deeds as in Luke 22, 3, that is, as he entered Judas. And he can cause natural disasters, Job 1, verse 19. Satan has power in this world, but Satan's power is not unlimited. And Satan, whenever he messes with God's own, must ask permission of God. So when we're sifted, even like Peter and the other disciples, we need to remember that whatever shaking is happening in our lives is being allowed by our God and Father. Is it that the enemy's often at work in that process? Absolutely. But it's never for the child of God that it, he's at work without the permission of God. God is not in those moments out of control of his children's lives. Now, I don't know about you, but that's important to me to know that and remember that. Because sometimes it feels like it's completely out of control. Sometimes it, I mean, let's just be frank, it feels like our Father is nowhere to be found. And the assaults of the enemy, imagine Job's life, rage. And it feels as if the enemy has all control in the circumstances around us and even in our own personal lives, and yet it's just not so. God does allow such sifting. In Matthew's account of where we, where we are in Luke, let me, let me read Matthew 26, 30 to 32. It says there, when they had sung a hymn, that is, there at the Lord's table, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all 
fall away because of me this night. So this is the rest of the story of the same encounter we see in Luke 22. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, and he quotes scripture here from Zechariah 13, where God put a prophecy about what would happen in the garden when Jesus was arrested. And here it is. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. What happened when they arrested Jesus after Judas betrayed him into the hands of his enemies? They all scattered. They literally ran away. All of them. Not just old Peter. All of them. But he encourages them with these words in verse 32. But after I am raised up, you're going to leave me. Every one of you. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. In other words, I'll be waiting on you in Galilee. I'll still be there for you. You're going to leave me, but I'm going to be there for you. On the other side of the resurrection, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to be waiting in victory for you to take you into a different level of victory than you've ever known. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But he tells them, you're going to fall away. You're, you're fixing to be sifted like wheat. And this is part of the plan because Zechariah 13, 7 prophesied that it would happen. In fact, God has ordained to use this sort of sifting. I believe we can say from the example here in, in, in the lives of the disciples, and particularly in Peter's life, God has ordained to use even our failures to walk in faith when we don't walk in faith. It's part of his work of sanctification in our lives. And you say, well, how did we make sense? I don't know. Don't, don't try to make sense of it. It's just true. You understand, when you talk about what God's doing in your life, I mean, you're already over your head, right? Hello? So I don't, I don't know how to put it all together. Just know it's true. That's why in James 1, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds, trials of various kinds. Well, I mean, that don't make a lick of sense, does it? I mean, the last thing we do is count joy... Hard times. And that's exactly what James says to do. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know why. How do, I, how do I think that way? For you know that the testing of your faith, which is a test that comes from God, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When you and I are sifted, Satan wants to destroy our faith. But when you and I are being sifted, you know what God's doing in the process of that sifting? He's refining our faith. And we may even fail in faith. But on the other side of the failure, God wants to bring us to a stronger faith. About 30 years after the scene that we're looking at today in Luke 22, Peter himself, having learned more about God's ways with his servants, would write these words in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter said, here's the deal. You, you rejoice in the salvation you have and what's to come, even though now for a little while you've been grieved by trials. But those trials, Peter says, there's a reason for the sifting. It's so that the genuineness of your faith can be seen. That your faith can be purified and refined like gold in a, in a smelter's fire. And in, in that crucible of testing, it can be made even more pure and strong. And that on the day of Jesus' return, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to Him. 
In 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Peter says it this way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be surprised if you find yourself being violently shaken in the sifter of God's providence and even Satan's attacks. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So trials and times of sifting should not surprise us. The certainty of sifting. The sifting of all who would be called true disciples of Jesus. Thirdly, notice with me beginning in verse 33. You say we skip verse 32. Yep, we'll come back to it in a minute. Thirdly, notice Peter's false certainty about his faithfulness to Jesus. Peter's false certainty about his faithfulness to Jesus. So far we've seen the certainty of the disciples' perseverance. We've seen the certainty of the disciples' sifting. These are things Jesus said are going to happen. But notice Peter's false certainty. A false certainty about his own faithfulness to Jesus. In verse 33, Peter's response to, you're going to deny me, is, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Skipping down to verse 54, then they seized him and led him away bring him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Some of the other Gospels tell us that Peter even cursed at this point. Yep. He cussed him in his denial of Jesus. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And imagine it. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He looked at Peter many times. Peter had looked into Jesus' eyes many, many times, but he never looked into his eyes like that. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We're all Peter, aren't we? We've all denied him. And while we've never looked him eyeball to eyeball, we have, by the power of the Spirit of God, felt him look into our eyes when we've denied him. Matthew 26, verse 33, Peter answered him. This is Matthew's account. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Listen, don't be, don't be rough on Peter. And all the disciples, Matthew's account says, all the disciples said the same. No, Jesus, none of us will ever deny you. In John 13, 38, that's John's account of the same thing. When it gets to this point, you know what Jesus does here? John put, says he, he, asked, he actually asked P Peter a question. He looks at Peter and he said, Will you lay down your life for me? Really, Peter? You won't deny me? You, in fact, you're willing to die for me? Really, Peter? Will you lay down your life for me? See, Peter, you got it all backwards. You, you don't have what it takes. You don't got this. I got this. I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to die for your unfaithfulness to me. You know, our knee-jerk reaction to all this talk about our unfaithfulness to God is to talk like Peter, isn't it? We're just like Peter. Our knee-jerk reaction is to talk like all 11 of these guys. Not me, Jesus. I won't deny you. I'm one of the faithful ones, Lord. But we misjudge our ability to be faithful to Jesus when we talk that way. And as did Peter and the rest of the 11, we reveal a self-dependence and a self-confidence, hear me, that will fail. Not maybe it will fail. It might fail. Perhaps. No. It will fail. You don't got this. I don't got this. God's point and allowing times of sifting is to teach us our own weakness and our desperate dependence on His grace if we're ever to live faithfully before Him. That's the point. Fourthly and finally this morning, Jesus' faithfulness. I want you to see it in verse 32. Jesus' faithfulness that ensures our perseverance. Peter, Satan's demanded to have you and to sift you like wheat, verse 32. But I have prayed for you. Singular, by the way, here. He's demanded to have all 11 of you and sift you like wheat, all of you. But now, laser focus on Peter. But Peter, I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you, Peter... Have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How amazing and, and just beautifully gracious is that? Peter's so cocky in this moment. He's so self-assured, self-confident. Foolishly confident. And Jesus said, this is going to happen. I know you're going to deny me. But there's something you need to know, Peter. I'm going to be faithful to you. In fact, I have prayed for you. I've talked to the Father about you. And I've asked him to help your faith not fail. And when you've turned again, when you've repented, when I've restored you, strengthen your brothers. Jesus' faithfulness that ensures our perseverance. You know, Jesus' prayer that he prayed for Peter, referred to right there, you know, that prayer was answered on a beach one morning after breakfast with his disciples, wasn't it? 
over in John 21. We're not going to read this whole passage, just to summarize, but check it out later, John 21, 15 to 19. It's not on the PowerPoint. I'm just going to skim through this really quickly. They just had breakfast, and, you know, it was a, it was a recreation of, of their, their original calling where Jesus gives them a big catch to make them think back to when they were first called, when they first came to know Jesus. And, and after breakfast, he starts talking to Peter. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And you'll remember there was this exchange. Yes, Jesus, you know I love you. And he asked him again the second time, and same answer. He asked him again the third time, same answer. Three times, what happened three times in the life of Peter and Jesus? The last time they were together. Hello, we just read it. Hey, Jesus, Peter denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus here questions Peter three times about his love. And in so doing, Jesus teaches Peter the false confidence that he's had in himself. And he leads him in this moment to depend on his power and his strength for true faithfulness. For true faithfulness. And you know what? The book of Acts, there's so much more that can be said about John 21, but this is not a message on John 21. The book of Acts and Peter's letters make it clear that Peter learned that lesson on that beach that morning. I, I believe he'd been learning it since he wept bitterly after denying Jesus three times. I, I, I believe God had been dealing with him. It just got all sealed and wrapped up that day on the beach. The book of Acts, Peter's letters make it clear that he learned the lesson well. And knowing his own weakness, Peter would go on to live and preach and stand through persecution and the all-sufficient grace of God in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter, in the book of Acts, is used by God to do what? Just like Jesus told him, to strengthen his brothers. Don't miss that. Our main point today is that Jesus will restore and keep his own. But not only does he restore us, just like he did Peter, God not only restores sifted servants, he can and does make them vessels of honor that are used in the lives of other people to bring them closer to Jesus, to strengthen them in their faith. Peter learned his lesson well. In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, he exhorts us, clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know what Peter's saying in those words? There was a day when I thought I had it. I thought I got this. I told Jesus, Jesus, I got this. And I learned real quick I didn't have this. I learned real quick what I should have said in that moment is I need you now more than I've ever needed you before. I should have humbled myself before God. I should have not exalted myself, but let God strengthen me and give me what I needed so that he in time could exalt me. I learned that lesson, and I'm telling all of you, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Did you know, you know, we, we saw Jesus said, Peter, I prayed for you. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? Did you know that? This is yes, still 2022. Did you know Jesus prayed for you? 
In John 17, verse 17, and also 20 to 24, Jesus prays for all of us, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How do I know he's praying for all of us? Because he says so in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is just the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you, do you believe in him? Who, who believes in Jesus today? Who trusts him as their Savior? Okay, then he's talking about you, and this is what he says. I ask, Father, I'm asking all this stuff not just for those who, who, who I'm talking to, but those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, that's all of us, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. He prays for our unity, and he asks God, get them home to glory. Jesus prayed for you. I, I, got, I got a better one. You ready? Did you know that Jesus didn't just pray for you one time in John 17, but did you know that Jesus prays for you every day? He talks to the Father about you every day. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, the former priests, the Levitical priests there in the temple in Jerusalem, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They were humans. They just died. And somebody else had to take over. But he, Jesus, holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, listen, consequently, because he lives forever, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to do what? To pray for you, to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying, he's, pray, he's praying for you today, he'll pray for you tomorrow, he'll pray for you the next day. He's making intercession, even by the merits of his own uh, broken body, shed blood, and resurrection for you every day. Every day. Now, if that don't light you fire, something's wrong, bad. You see, it was that truth that moved Paul to write these words in Philippians 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It only makes sense. If, if Jesus is our great high priest and he's still interceding for us today, then guess what? He is going to get us home. God, let me tell you who, 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 whose prayers God hears, those of his son. God the Father hears the prayers of those of his son, and he will accomplish that for which Jesus prays. Paul had learned a very similar lesson as Peter had to learn. As recorded over in 2 Corinthians 12, you're familiar with it, verses 7 through 10. But listen to it again. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul had had all kind of spiritual experiences. God had given him visions and all these things. So to keep me from being conceited or proud because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Peter and Paul were different, weren't they? Peter flat out blew it. He denied Jesus. Paul was in danger of becoming proud because of all that God had given him. And so he had a thorn to deal with. He didn't like it. He wanted it to go away. But though they were different, God's answer was the same. Humble yourself before me and let me get this for you. You ain't got this. 
but I've got this. The faithfulness, the faithful Savior for sifted servants. You see, when we realize our weakness and our inability, it is then that we will fully depend on the all-sufficient grace and strength of Jesus to enable us to walk faithfully in love and obedience to him. Jesus will faithfully keep and restore and use his own even in our weakness and unfaithfulness to him. You don't got this. But he's got this. Maybe you're in a place today where you know you've not been where you need to be with the Lord. But the Lord's been dealing with you. You've sensed the Spirit of God drawing you back. But instead of coming humbly to Him, just laying it down, just acknowledge it, saying, God, I haven't got this. I am in deep trouble. I'm in a mess. Sin's got me locked down, chained up. I am enslaved to this thing. I cannot break loose of what it is that's enslaved me. Instead of humbling yourself, you've tried to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You've tried to say, you know what, I've got this. God, I, I, hear, I hear your call, but, but I've got this. You see, inherent in the call of God drawing you back, inherent in the voice of the Spirit of God speaking, that small, still small voice in your heart, inherent in that call is a call to let him have it all. Let me tell you something, salvation, hear me, is grace upon grace. It's always grace. God never wants you to fix yourself and then come to him. Because here's the deal, a little secret, if you hadn't learned it. You can't fix yourself. And right now, when I find myself in that place, my problem in the moment is I'm trying to fix myself. That's what got me there in the first place. I tried to do it my way. I tried to, to, to get better on my own. You cannot fix yourself. Grace is necessary. And the only fix is to say, God, I don't got this. I need you to get this whole thing. You've got to handle it all. If that's where you are this morning, let me just encourage you. Humble yourself before God. He wants to fix it. He wants to to change you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to hold you up. He wants to take a bitterly weeping Peter and make him into the Pentecost preacher that Peter would become. Let's pray. Father, even now, work in our hearts. Thank you for this word. What an encouragement, God, because... All we bring to you is unfaithfulness, sin, disobedience, rebellion, pride. I thank you, Lord, that you will faithfully keep and restore us, even in our weakness, even in our unfaithfulness. So, God, in these moments, help us to simply humble ourselves before you, confess our sin, repent of it, turn back to you. God, if we as your people have been serving, perhaps, maybe it's not just open sin, but maybe we've been serving in our own strength. We, we've really not trusted you. We, we've, we've just been putting on a spiritual show in our own strength. God, may we truly serve you in power because we say, 
In my weakness, I am strong. In my weakness, God's power has to work. In my weakness, the all-sufficient grace of Jesus is needed and is my only hope and power. Lord, I pray this morning you would draw someone back to you who's wondered. I pray this morning for the first time you would draw someone into fellowship, into right relationship with you through faith in Jesus, someone who has been too long in sin. Someone maybe here this morning who is absolutely beat to a pulp by their own sin. They're bloody, they're tired, they're exhausted. God, may this morning you draw them to call out to Jesus and lay down at his feet, helpless and fully dependent on him. Lord, those are the people you save. It's who we all are if we know you today. Helpless apart from your grace. So work we ask in these moments in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond to God however you need to as the worship team leads us in a song. Altar's open for you to come and pray. If you need to know Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior today, I'll be right here. Whatever your need. Maybe, maybe you just need to come back from from running away from God. You've been afar in a far country like the prodigal son and today you need to come back. Man, Jesus wants to restore you. He wants to help you. He wants to free you from what binds you, even as we sing.
people said. Amen. Amen. What a fitting song to close with today.